Thank you for that introduction, Jeff, and I'm really pleased to be here. I'm a bit of a last-minute speaker, so <laughs> bear with me if my paper still has a, a few glitches in it. I wanted to just provide a little bit of background. Um, this paper is based on an oral history project that I participated in 20 years ago. So um, the, the voices that you're going to be hearing today um, are, you'll note that there, that there are some things that have changed, of course, in the past two decades. But what I think um, these voices do is they provide a snapshot of a particular um, period of time, a transition that was well underway um, from in Jackson Hole from a ranching to a tourist economy, and one, of course, that has continued um, to the present. So I wanted to start by talking a little bit about um, the tropes of the Old West and the New West, and I'm sure when we think of the Old West, um, the kinds of images that come to mind are uh, cowboys, saloons, dirt streets. This is a picture, of course, of cattle coming through, coming out of a, a corral there. Um, just sort of a, a stereotype, really, um, but that is one based on, on a lifestyle that is found throughout the rural West still. In contrast, of course, we have the New West, which is an economy that borrows from the Old West tropes, like riding horses and cowboys, but mostly for tourists who are coming to these beautiful places to take part in activities like skiing, um, shopping, horseback riding, all under um, in, in these, these beautiful places. Sorry, I don't have my system here. The Taylor Ranch is located two miles down a dirt road that hugs Lower Slide Lake. It's roughly 19 miles northeast of the town of Jackson, Wyoming. Visually, this region is dominated by its violent geologic past. The jagged peaks of the Grand Tetons dominate the west. The tumble of rocks and a scar left behind by the Grovant Slide in 1925 mark the red dirt hillsides of the Grovant drainage. The lake created by the natural dam when the rock slide happened covered hundreds of acres of ranch and farmland. The dam seemed to be holding, but two years later, on May 18, 1927, another wet spring, it gave way. A torrent of water and debris rushed down the valley into the town of Kelly, destroying everything in its path. Most residents escaped, but again, an act of nature forced the people of the Grovant drainage to rebuild their lives. Upper and lower slide lakes, the scar on Sheep Mountain, and the rocks left behind stand as testimony to the geologic instability of this region. Fifteen years after the Kelly flood, Verlin and Joella Taylor, both children of ranchers, paid $800 for 160 acres next to Lower Slide Lake. And this picture here um, is looking east across Slide Lake, and the ranch that I'm talking about is that green pasture that you can see on the other side of the lake. 
I entered Verlin and Joella's home in November of 1999 to hear their story. We sat down at the kitchen table and discussions began with the slide and then to reminiscences of when Joella and Verlin bought the ranch. Part of the acreage was still covered by water, but Verlin recalled when he heard it was for sale, he got on his pony and looked it over. He liked what he saw and the deal was done. At the time, Verlin was a summer ranger in the Black Rock District of the National Forest. In the fall, he helped run an outfitting business that took hunters up into the National Forest. Verlin remembered, I always said I was going to have a ranch and work for myself by the time I was 40. Though the Taylors did not move onto the ranch right away, Verlin says that one of the first projects they undertook was getting an irrigation ditch surveyed by the soil conservation man in their district. I always said I would never plant an acre unless I could irrigate. He continued to work for the Forest Service until one day there was a leaf that I put in the big book that said, don't fraternize with the people in your district. Having spent years getting to know the ranchers who were permittees on Forest Service land, Verlin did not want anything to do with a supposedly more professional approach to rangering. He left the government service for good, and he and his growing family moved into a tent on the ranch in the fall of 1950. Sorry, my slides got mixed up. Here's the family. Um, Verland is on the right, and Joella, his wife, is holding their, their youngest. Glenn, who's the other person I interviewed, is the cutie pie in the back with the polar bear sweater on. Very stylish. Verlin and Joella have clear memories of what Jackson Hole, they call the valley, was like during the first half of the 20th century. Verlin was born in 1909, and he noted about every quarter section at one time was a homestead, and each community had a nice little church and a schoolhouse all through the valley. Joella, who was born in 1915, remembered that this started to change with the creation of um, Teton National Park. Joella vividly recalled this period in time. They dedicated the park when I was about 13, a long time ago, and then the country changed since then because, of course, once there was that little bit of park here that made people more interested to come here. They could go to Teton Park or Yellowstone. She remembered, a lot of that country was sold to Rockefeller, and then he gave it to the park. My dad sold directly to a person who was selling directly to the park. But the Elk Ranch and all those were bought up by the Snake River Land Company. Verland Ad, yep, that was Rockefeller, and he bought on the QT. He and his attorneys decided that if they exposed their hand, the prices of real estate would go way up, so they kept it quiet, and then people suspected what they were doing. He got a bad name for that. Verlin also talked about park extension when they added acreage to the park. Well, you remember Doc Huff, the first doctor we had. And then there was Dick Ware that bought for Snake River Land Company for Rockefeller. And Andy Abel said about those two, if you put those men in a sack and rolled it downhill, there'd be a son of a bitch on top the whole time. Verlin <laughs> added slowly, that was one man's opinion about the park. Joella concluded 
There were still some ranches, but those little ranches had sold out, and the people had moved to town and out of the valley and so forth. So it definitely made a change in the overall picture. Verlin and Joella, who had committed to full-time ranching, oh, here's a, I'm sorry, I'm just going to pause. Again, um, Verlin at the top on the left and Joella, um, their son, Glenn, on the horse, and his son, Brian, with his family, with the lake in the background. Verlin and Joella had committed full-time to their ranching and outfitting business, found themselves caught up in the impacts of this bigger park. They observed and adjusted to the continual changes brought by park extension and increased tourism in the valley. Many of the, many of the differences they identified had to do with their community. Verlin remembered that at one time, they knew everybody in the valley, every storekeeper, every bartender, every person here. Knew them all, but now most of them had kicked off. Joella, who taught at the Kelly School in the 1940s, added, I knew every kid in Jackson Hole, every grade school kid, you know, because they had little things in Jackson that drew the kids from around the valley. But then, it's such a difference. Now I don't know even the kids in Kelly. Questions about post-war changes, such as the ski area at Teton Village, elicited comments from Verlin that demonstrated his pragmatism. That ski area was progress. We were able to accommodate all those people, something new to attract people to come here. Joella, on the other hand, was more nostalgic. I was never pleased about that park, and I'm not right about it today, but Verland is. I can see his ideas that it's progress, and we've got it, and we've got to accept it. But I liked it the other way, when it was this neighbor and this neighbor, and so forth. That's my feeling. The Taylors appreciated the income earned from tourists and their um, outfitting business. At the same time, they are not as excited about visitors who decide to move to the area. Joella said the newcomers saw it as heaven on earth will stop right here. Again, Verland is more practical. Aren't we obligated to take care of the share of growth all over? Aren't we obligated to do that as Americans? Joella's concerns about growth, however, extend even beyond the valley itself. I think that every place, not every place, a lot of places, like we see it right out here over Teton Pass at Victor, all of a sudden people are coming there. It will be just as popular as Jackson Hole one of these days. This is a prophetic statement, isn't it? Um, because they've got those old mountains right on that other side, too. And those Tetons are what ruined Jackson Hole, aren't they? The Tetons are what ruined Jackson Hall for all the old-timers. Verlin responded softly, shear them off, and then louder, that's been the greatest attraction in the whole western country, those Teton mountains. Though practical, Verlin is not without some bitterness. Verlin, Joella, and Mary and their daughter-in-law believe the ranching community they grew up with is gone forever. When asked if ranching is still a viable part of the community, Verlin replied, that's blown up already, a thing of the past. As the valley becomes more developed, ranchers faced increasing difficulties. Land that they may have leased last year for their cows might this year be the site of luxury log homes. Marion backed up this statement when she said, one piece we leased a year ago sold off, and the guy, the buyer, isn't interested. He's going to build a fancy home on it instead. And so there's another chunk that's gone. Joella added, that's right, the land that raised the cows, now they're subdividing, and these rich people are getting it. Another problem the Taylors recognize 
is that with the increase in property values, their taxes have gone up at the same exponential rate, making it hard for ranchers to stay in business. Look at it this way, Verlin said. You could take this property and raise a cow on that kind of ground that's worth, sorry, can you take prop, this kind of property and raise a cow on ground that's worth $30,000, or $50,000 an acre? His statement prompted the question then of why they have not sold the whole ranch the way some of their neighbors did. Verland answered, sentiment gets involved. It becomes an emotional issue. Marion said, people become attached to the land and their way of life, and it's hard to let go. Joella included the responsibility to their son, Glenn. I think it would have been a dirty, lousy trick to have sold that when Glenn liked it so well. He had spent his whole life right along on the ranch. Of course, he worked other places too, but it wouldn't have been very decent of us to just sell that right out from under him. Verlin points out, you have to look at the economical side of it. He could have sold that and bought a good ranch. That ranch, you have to work like everything to get the hay, to get it to produce. Obviously, more than economics are involved on this piece of ground. Verland and Joella's opinions about changes in the valley are not limited to development. The growing grizzly bear population, the reintroduction of wolves in Yellowstone, all trouble them. Talking with Verland and Joella, though, helps identify some of the key issues ranchers in Jackson Hole and across the West have been facing for decades. Growth in tourism, development, the boom in real estate, and declining cattle markets have had the most impact on ranchers. Projects like the reintroduction of wolves, however, rankle to the folks who have spent all their lives exterminating predators and pests. The combined physical and psychological challenges to ranchers create a difficult environment for those who wish to continue ranching at any level. Within this set of circumstances is their son, Glenn, who operates, and still operates, one of the last working cattle ranches in the valley. 20 years ago, Glenn was in his 60s, which makes him, I think he's 86 now. He still rides a horse. Uh, hobbles are, he likes his ATV better, but you know. Um, Glenn and his wife, Marion, and their son, Brian, work the ranch on Slide Lake. We moved here when I was 15, Glenn remembers, and I've spent my whole lifetime right here. Of course, now the ranch has acquired electricity, running water, a telephone, an updated irrigation system, and modern farm equipment. The number of cattle, however, has not changed too much since the early days. Glenn said, we've never had more cows than we have now. When we first started, we only had about 25 cows. Well, actually, we had about 60 cows the first year, and then that year, Dad and I planted a crop, and the snow came, and it snowed it all down. So we sold a bunch of our cows. So actually, we had 14 cows. But uh, we've been as high as 125 mothers, 130 mothers. We're back to 70 mothers now. The cows, though, were never their only source of income. Verlin started in the outfitting business in the 1930s, picking up hunters off the side of the road, back when anybody could get a permit. Glenn and Brian continue with the outfitting business and have added summer pack trips as well. Especially important to the tailors were the permits they obtained to cut timber in the National Forest. Glenn remembers, I used to cut timber. That's how Marion and I built, from the timber cutting. We built those two houses in Kelly. We built the house out here that mother and dad have. That's how we made our living. They sold the cut logs to ranchers around the valley and people who were building log homes. He said, 
We cut a lot of house logs, not a million dollars worth, but certainly enough that we made a living at it. Oh, and firewood. We cut a lot of firewood. Dunn continued, it was all in the National Forest. We had to get a permit. Most of the poles we cut right back here. We cut a lot of fence poles, house logs, firewood. We just cut whatever we could get a permit for. That's something that's gone forever. The people have got, the people who don't think the forest ought to be cut anymore have got their foot in the door and you can't get a permit to cut commercially. They don't even recognize the timber in this valley as a commodity. It's a dead issue. With the timber cutting income gone, he has turned more to his outfitting business, including, as I said, including the addition of summer pack trips. Glenn remarked that the specific moment when the economic base, base in the valley shifted from ranching and activities such as lobby to tourism was in the 1960s, when the Jackson Hole ski area was developed over by Wilson. He sees it this way. When Jackson Hole ski area went in, people started getting greedy. They could see getting big bucks out of those ranch lands, and I'm not criticizing that. That's the way it is. Money talks. When those people had the opportunity to sell those ranches for big money, it took off like a shot. At first, it wasn't so outrageous. Land was still fairly reasonable, but then the last 10 years, it skyrocketed. And the real downside of that is the young folks who grew up here can't afford to stay here. Glenn remembers that many people in the community supported the ski area, but few realized how the development would mushroom. Long, long time people, people who lived here all their lives, that had good sized pieces of property, when they saw that thing happening like that, why they got right on the bandwagon, I mean, they didn't hesitate. They could see that there was an opportunity for them to sell that property and retire. Some of the ranchers who lasted a little longer, they got even more money and the prices just kept going up, up, up. And the money brought in, it didn't bring in any undesirables, but it brought a lot of rich people, and they are not the very best people for this community. <laughs> he is critical of the people who, in building expensive homes, use up many resources, and then only live in them three or four weeks out of the year. Glenn commented, that has killed the old community as I grew up with, it is no longer there. Like Verlin and Joelic, Glenn believes that the days of ranching as an economic, social, and political force in Jackson Hole and around the West are permanently in the past. Glenn watched as the economy underwent a serious transition from ranching to tourism. The economy is not driven by ranching, he said, it has absolutely nothing to do with ranching in this valley. The ranchers, some will hang on a few more years and then they'll go away. Glenn and Marion discussed the fact that the Grovant they and Glenn, on the Grovant, they and Glenn's sister are the only ones left who rely on any ranching business for income. But more than just income, Marion noted, there's an attachment to the lifestyle that overrides simple economic choices. Interestingly, when Glenn thinks about the little ranches that used to populate the Grovant drainage, he recalled that they all ranched, but also most of them had a little dude ranch or outfitting business on the side. So even before the development that started in the 60s, the ranchers relied on outside income. Additionally, Glenn, like his dad, is fairly practical and does not look at development as entirely bad. The best thing that ever happened to them ranchers was when those rich people came along and bought their properties. Really, it is. Glenn does not resent the ranchers, some of his very best friends, who chose to sell their places, echoing his father's sentiments. 
Who can afford to raise a cow on land worth thousands or maybe millions of dollars? For the few remaining ranchers in the valley, Glenn identified two main problems, the land crunch and a changing environmental ethic. He has a permit to graze 30 head of cattle on Forest Service land, however, he relies on leased pasture for the rest of his cows in the summer. As mentioned before, because lots are being bought for the purpose of building homes, finding pasture becomes more difficult each year. His opinions on the influence of powerful conservation movement in the valley are dictated by what, by what he regards as the historical use of the land in the area. Land that homesteaders made safe for cattle by eradicating bison that might carry brucellosis and predators like bears and wolves has now become um, home to populations of all three. He and Marion both believe that the development in Jackson Hole has stolen not only the community that they remember, but also the one their children experienced growing up. For the young people from families that have been in the valley for four, now five generations, like the Taylor children, the economic feasibility of staying in the valley is contingent on their willingness to work at low-paying service industry jobs that do not meet the cost of living. For example, Linda, Glenn and Marion's eldest daughter, has a teaching certificate, but would have to wait perhaps years until a position opened up in one of the local schools. Even then, a teacher's salary is inadequate. Marion adds that their older, oldest son, Bruce, does not even want to live there again. It's become too commercial. He likes it around Sheridan, but it's going to end up just like Jackson. It's heading in that direction, she said. It's lost. The world we knew, it used to be, you'd drive down the highway and you'd wave because you know the guy in the car, but not anymore. Glenn said, it's happening all over the West. It's gradually taken out a lot of the Western flavor because of the money. Like Montana or Colorado has become, with some of the larger ski areas, it's become a rich man's playground. And I bet the old timers are a little bit resentful of that. These ideas lead to comments about the community and their views of whom they consider a local. Glenn begins by saying that when he was a kid, he probably knew 95% of the families in Jackson Hole. But anymore, we know a very small percentage of the people that live here. When he thinks about the newcomers and the difference between the new people and the locals, he says, I know a lot of those new people, and I don't care that they're here really, but they're not locals. And you know, a lot of them are a long way from having any attachment to our valley. Locals, as far as I'm concerned, they have roots here. But those people don't have roots. They don't even have a scratch on the ground. Really. They own their fancy home. It just doesn't cut it with me. And I don't think I'm being selfish. I guess I'm just a little bit perturbed that our kids had no opportunity to stay here. The regret that Marion and Glenn voice is not so much nostalgia for the ranching income but rather dismay over the effects development has had on the closeness of the old community and their family. Um, three of their four children have, have moved away. Glenn guided the final portion of the interview. He concluded, I guess you could probably write that one of the greatest threats to our lifestyle is the political machine. Living in a county that is only 3% privately owned and with their livelihood dependent on permits for grazing and hunting on national forest, the Taylors have reason to be concerned. Glenn takes a regional approach to solving this particular problem. How better to know what's good for Wyoming than the people of Wyoming? But we don't get to decide.
What can the stories of this family tell us about the impact of changing economies in the West, one that has only accelerated in the last 20 years? The ranchers in Teton County, especially since the early 20th century, have relied on outside revenue to supplement the cattle industry. From the early hunting and fishing trips that Verlin guided in the 30s to the present day, outfitting businesses run by the family, the Taylors derived income from a variety of sources. The family made use of timber resources in the area when they were available. Rather than an abrupt, abrupt inclusion of the tourist economy when ranching became less viable, the transition um, has been evolving. For instance, Glenn's sister rents cabins at the west end of Slide Lake to visitors, and Brian, his wife, and children take summer tourists on horseback and fishing trips. Their outfitting business is still their most lucrative um, source of income. That's Brian on the left, um, and a rather stylized picture of someone fishing at the lake. Certainly the Taylors agree um, a lifestyle they had in the 50s was a more quiet and community-oriented one. But they do not seem to blame ranchers who chose to sell to developers and corporate interests for changes since then. For the Taylors, the greatest sadness is that the popularity of the valley has raised the cost of living to a level that does not allow the young people to stay in Jackson Hole. Their recollections also demonstrate that this family's adjustments to the changing economic environment ensure their ability to find room to do what they love. Despite park extension, ski area, loss of timber resources, and an escalating cost of living, the Taylors will continue to find room to ranch in Jackson Hole. Thank you. Thank you.